1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 23. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, just a few verses, starting in verse 23. The Apostle Paul writing, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, God, that you would use me to uh, speak your word today. Lord, I pray that you would uh, anoint me with your Holy Spirit, that I speak your words and not my own words. And Lord, that my words aren't just hot air, but that my words are are life-giving to someone who needs to hear the truth of the gospel today. In Jesus' name, amen. Pay attention to the screen just a moment. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Trust in me also. You know the way to where I'm going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way. The truth. And the life. This, this is my body. This is my blood. Remember me by doing this. I'm going to the Father, but I will always be with you. Last week, we celebrated and heard the truth of the word of God on water baptism, and this week, we're focusing on the Lord's Supper. John Wesley was the 18th century founder of the Methodist movement, and therefore, he's uh, our spiritual grandfather as well as Pentecostals, and he said this about, about the Lord's Supper, this quote on the screen, it is the duty of every Christian, he said, to receive the Lord's Supper as often as he can. The first reason why is because it is a plain command of Christ. There should be a slide up there, Justin. 
There we go. The first reason why is because it is a plain command of Christ. A second reason why every Christian should do this as often as he can is because the benefits of doing it are so great to all that do it in obedience to him. In other words, we believe in practicing and participating in the Lord's Supper, number one, because Jesus tells us to. And then number two, because it has real and true spiritual benefits for you and I in our walk with Jesus Christ. We are believers. That's the series that we're in. And we believe in the Lord's Supper. We believe in the communion table. We can call this a sacrament or an ordinance, uh, uh, like we do water baptism, and it's also called by many names. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Table. It's called communion or holy communion. Uh, the earliest name for this meal for the new Christians used was a Greek word, Eucharist, and some Christian traditions still call it that every Sunday, the Eucharist, and it's a Greek word that means Thanksgiving. It was the feast of Thanksgiving for the work that Jesus had done, uh, and at times it's been called the agape feast or the love feast that Christians would sit down together in a meal and they called it the love feast as they participated in this meal. Our Catholic brothers and sisters, they call it the mass. They, they come together every Sunday and they celebrate the mass. They celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus. This meal has been expressed throughout history in different forms and in different styles. Originally, it was not just a cracker and a little shot glass. Originally, it was actually a, an entire meal. It was a feast that the Christians came together and they had a literal supper. They sat down and ate a complete meal together. In fact, the earliest Christians uh, not only shared the meal together at the table, but they would take some that was left over and they would give it to the poor and needy as they went home. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus Christ during what we now call the Last Supper, which we just watched a representation of on the screen. The night before Jesus was betrayed and put on trial, he shared this meal with his closest disciples. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus and practiced by the earliest of Christians. Acts 2 tells us that the early church practiced breaking bread together on a daily basis. In fact, if you joined a first century church, it would look almost nothing like the church service we're having here today. It would look more like what we just saw on the screen. It would look like a, a gathering of people coming together around a meal, probably closer to the floor, reclined at the table, and they would share a meal together. They would eat, they would talk, they would, they would uh, spend time in fellowship, they would pray over and they would bless the meal, they would break the bread, they would pour the cup, they would share the, the food and the drink, and they would understand that because they were Christians gathering together, this was their regular service, this isn't a special thing, this is how they did church in the first days of Christianity. And they sat down and they shared together, and they understood that because they were doing that, Christ was there with them in their midst. They would have sat around the meal and they would have maybe after they finished eating, they would sing a hymn or, or a psalm. And then the pastor or the elder would have taught while they all sat at the table and shared in a meal, shared in the Lord's Supper. I'm telling you all this because I want you to understand the centrality of the Lord's Supper to the early Christian experience, the importance of communion to the Christian life. The first Christians would be confused today by a church that didn't regularly celebrate and remember Jesus' death and resurrection by sharing a sacred meal. They would be completely baffled 
that it wasn't a regular thing for us to do. I believe in the Lord's Supper. We believe in the Lord's Supper. I believe in partaking the Lord's Supper regularly. Jesus expected us to partake of this meal regularly. The Lord's Supper is one of the things that made following Jesus different than every other religious tradition and sectarian cult of the time. There was something that directly linked eating together and Christianity somehow from the very beginning of Christian history. The verses we just read this morning, they're from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth was an absolute mess. If you read 1 Corinthians, it is just a list of Paul correcting problem after problem after problem they have. I preached a few weeks ago on the word of God and about how the Corinthians, they had just come freshly out of paganism. They had just freshly come out of worshiping false gods and and idolatry. And so they had a lot of adjusting to do to figure out this thing called walking with Jesus. And so Paul is listing these things that, hey, okay, I know you have a sincere heart for Jesus. But we need to deal with some things that, you know, we got to get right if you're going to be a Christian and if you're really going to follow Jesus. So you get to the chapter one of Corinthians and he's dealing with figuring out who your leadership is and who your real pastor is. And that you read that and then you get there and then you find out that there's some sin issues going on. And there's one particular man in in general. there's one particular man that is in the church who is, uh, who is causing a lot of trouble because of some sin that he's committing. And you, you read through and there's stuff about how they're treating the poor and different things. And then you get to chapter 11 and Paul says, hey, you've got some communion problems also that we need to deal with. And we can gather from his correction and from his teaching that they were not celebrating the Lord's Supper correctly, and apparently they had turned the meal into some sort of status symbol where the wealthy would come in and they would eat first, but they would fill themselves up on this meal and there would be none left for the poor among them and there would be none left for the less fortunate among them and they would be treated as second-class citizens at the table. They had missed the entire point of communion completely. They had missed the entire point of Christian fellowship completely because the poor purpose of the whole meal was that we all come to the table together. We all come to the table as equals, and we're not here as one, as big eyes and little me's, but we're here together because the ground at the foot of the cross is level, and that we all come beggars needing bread, and so there's this issue going on because they're not treating communion correctly. And so Paul is correcting their issues, and he gives this summary and synopsis of the purpose of the Lord's Supper And the meal that they're sharing together, he recaps the story of the Last Supper and the importance and significance of the meal that we're going to share in today as well. Just a few observations from Paul's descriptions of the Lord's Supper. First, we remember the sacrifice at the table. We remember the sacrifice at the table. When we come to the Lord's table, Jesus tells us in verse 24 and 26 that as often as we drink the cup together... And as often as we eat the bread together, we do so in remembrance of him. When we come to the table, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. You know, in seminary, 
They taught us in preaching class that if you wanted people to remember what you talked about, you needed to have some sort of visual. You needed to have some sort of object lesson. Over and over and over again, they said if you want people to remember something, you got to give them an image. You got to give them a picture. You got to give them something to touch, to feel, to, to experience for themselves. Because when you have a picture, when you give people an image, when you give kids something to touch and something to feel, you're teaching them. They tend to remember the lesson more. Jesus through the Last Supper, through the Lord's Supper, and in the process of pouring the cup and in the process of breaking the bread, he's saying, I want you to remember this. Communion for Jesus is an object lesson. He's saying you can touch it, you can taste it, you can smell it, you can feel it. And because you can do all those things, you're going to be more likely to remember the sacrifice that I've made. He's pouring out red wine and he's saying to them, remember my blood that will be poured out of my body and will run down an old rugged cross and will mingle in the dust of the ground. I want you to remember. And then he's tearing bread apart and he's with his hands and he's saying, remember my body that was broken and abused and torn and destroyed for you. Remember my flesh being ripped apart at the hands of other human beings and remember how I still uttered out words of forgiveness while they were doing it. He's giving us something to remember. He's handing me the bread and the cup and saying, remember that I have determined and I have decided that you, Seth, are valuable to me. Your life and your eternity are so much are of so much worth to me that this is the price I'm going to pay. I'm going to pour out my blood for you and I'm going to rip open my flesh for you because you're worth it. And he says that to every one of us today that remember, remember, Susan, as he breaks the bread, the price that I paid for you. Remember, Deb, the price I paid for you. Remember, Jeff, as I pour my blood out for you, exactly how valuable you are to me. Remember that you are worth my body and you are worth my blood. You are worth my cleansing blood and my perfect body. Remember, you are worth the pain and the torture of the cross. Jesus is saying, remember when the enemy comes in and he plants seed of doubt and depression in your mind, when the enemy tells you that you are worthless, when the enemy tells you that your sin and your shame have made you unworthy, you are still welcome at the table and you are still welcome to take the bread and break it and remember that even though the enemy has said those things, Jesus says you are worth something and as you pour the cup out, you remember that you're worth the blood no matter what the enemy says about you. Remember your true worth and your true True value when you come to the table. Hallelujah. We don't just remember at the table, but we also rejoice in the victory at the table. In verse 26, Paul writes the words of Jesus and he says, as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you're not just remembering me, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Notice, he's saying you're proclaiming that the Lord's death is not final. That the Lord's death was not permanent. See, at the Lord's table, we don't just remember that he died. We are reminded and we rejoice that he didn't stay dead. 
At the table, we rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. We rejoice in the victory that he won for us with his body and with his blood. We're reminded at the table that Jesus died, but that he fought and overcame death, hell, and the grave. They buried his beaten and bruised and bloody body, but three days later, he was raised in a glorified body, an eternal body. And when he rose, he rose with the keys of death and Hades. He rose with the keys of authority. He rose in victory over every sickness, over every disease, over every infirmity. He rose in victory over every demon and devil from hell. He rose in victory over every addiction and every chain of bondage. He rose in victory over every fear you have ever had and over every lie you have ever believed. He rose in victory over spiritual darkness and oppression. He rose in victory over every sin that you have ever committed and ever will commit. He rose in victory over the stain and root of sin in your life. He rose in victory over every temptation you will face. At the Lord's table, we rejoice because we're reminded that the battle was already won. The battle has already been won. He didn't stay in the grave. We come to the Lord's table with all of our sickness and our hurts and our failures and our sin and our bondage. And we find that his blood and his body are still the antidote to all of life's trouble. We can come to the cup and find it to be that balm of Gilead that can soothe our soul. We come to the bread and we find it to be the manna of heaven that provides our every need. We don't just remember he died. We rejoice that he rose again. We rejoice. Rejoice that he has the final victory. Amen. We don't just remember and we're not just rejoicing today. When we come to the day table, we are refreshed in his presence. Just like we talked about last week that we are promised that Jesus is with us when we go through the waters of baptism. We are promised that Jesus is with us. When we come to his table, this is his table. It is not my table and it is not your table. It is not even this church's table. It is the table of the Lord. He alone is the host of this table. He alone is the one who prepares the table with his own body and his own blood. He is the one who issues invitations to the table. He is the one who welcomes us to the table. He's the one who sits at the head of the table. He's the one who hosts the meal at the table. He is here, and because it's his table, we are promised that he will always meet us there. Now, there are some traditions that teach that somehow the body and blood of Jesus literally become present in the bread and in the wine. I'm not going that far, but I am telling you that there is a real presence of Jesus when you come to the table. That if I'm a Pentecostal and I believe the Holy Ghost can show up in my car going down the road, how much more can the Holy Spirit show up at this table when I'm coming in faith with my faith and my mind and my heart and my emotions focused on the body and the blood that was broken for me? How much more would the Holy Ghost show up when I'm at his table? 
You don't have to wonder if Jesus is here at the table. You don't have to wait to feel his presence at the table. His presence is here whether you're feeling it or not. We don't have to hype up some sort of pseudo-emotional experience. We don't have to wait until we feel those Holy Spirit goosebumps. We can come to the table in faith with the community of believers around the table with us, and we can be assured of the presence of God and that the Son of God will meet us here through his Spirit. Because we're here as host of the table, because he's here as host of the table, when we come to the table, we are refreshed in his presence. When you've been emotionally and spiritually drained, come to the table and be refreshed in his presence. When family and marriage trouble have taken their toll on you the past few days, he invites you to the table to be refreshed in his presence. When you failed this week and you failed a temptation and sin, he invites you to the table to be refreshed in his presence. When the enemy's done everything he could to discourage you and to wear you out this week, Jesus invites you to the table today to be refreshed in his presence. Just as much as I believe that the Holy Spirit can show up in my life anywhere else I know for sure because his body and blood is represented here when I come to the table in faith that he will meet me here he will revive me he will refresh me he will rejuvenate me he will fall in this place because I'm coming to him and to his table because we remember his sacrifice and because we rejoice in his victory we come to the table and we're refreshed in his presence Lastly, at the table, Christ is revealed to us. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is it, the first few verses tell of the resurrection of Jesus three days after he was buried and crucified. The first few verses tell about his resurrection, and then you get down to about uh, verse 24, 25, somewhere around there. When you get there, you find two disciples who left Jerusalem before Sunday. And they're walking down the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking down the road, talking to one another, they were there Friday and they saw Jesus crucified and they saw him buried. And they're mourning over what they had seen. They had been followers of Jesus. They're walking down the road and they're talking about, man, we followed this guy for so long and then he just died. We thought... We thought he was going to overthrow the government. We thought he was going to bring peace to our nation. We thought that he was going to set us free from the oppression of the Roman government, but he's, he's dead. We invested all we had in this man, and now he's just died a criminal's death. And as they're walking down the road, a stranger comes and meets them and begins to walk with them. They don't recognize this man that's walking with them, but we know the end of the story, that it's Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And he's walking down the road with him. He says, what? What are you so troubled about? And they said, have you been living under a rock? Have you not heard what's going on and what's happened in Jerusalem this past weekend? And he says, no, tell me about it. And they start to tell him about how this man they had followed for years, not knowing that they're talking to him. They tell him about how this man they followed for years, how he was crucified by the Roman government, and how this man that they had followed for years had failed them. And as they're walking and talking, eventually... They get to a place and they act like they're, he acts like they're gonna, he's going to let them move on. But then he ends up walking with them. It's a really cool story. Go back and read it in Luke 24. But eventually he starts to talk. to. He says, wait a minute, this guy's the Messiah? You thought he was the Messiah? Well, doesn't 
Doesn't the, the prophets and the law teach that the Messiah would suffer? Doesn't the, the law and the prophets teach that the Messiah would be, would be rejected and that he would, he would even die? Doesn't it say that? And he begins to unfold the Old Testament scriptures and apply them to everything they've heard. And then they sit down and they eat a meal. And Jesus just starts to cook breakfast for him. And he says, hey, let me, let me fix you a meal. And he sits down and, and they're sitting and they've got bread and they've got a cup there. And he's telling him about all the law and the Old Testament and the prophets. And, he, and he's telling him about how it all feeds into this journey they've been on. And it says that when he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. And they recognized that they were talking to Jesus. I love that. And then when they go and they tell the story to their friends, they say they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Something happened at the moment they sat with Jesus and they saw him break the bread. Neurons started firing in their brain and synapses started connecting and, and memory started to come to the forefront of their mind. And when they saw him break the bread, they saw him every other time they had seen him break bread over a meal. When they saw him break the bread, they went back to Thursday night when he sat in the upper room with his disciples and he broke the bread. When they saw it, their minds went back to when he told the disciples for the last time that his body would be broken and his blood would be poured out for them. Christ was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread and sharing a meal together and connecting as they sat around the table, they recognized Jesus for who he truly was. I believe that in the same way, when you and I, we come together around the table of the Lord, we remember his sacrifice, we rejoice in his victory, we're refreshed in his presence, and in some new and fresh way, Christ can be revealed to you today. I don't care if you've been walking with the Lord for 60 years. Something new about the Lord Jesus Christ can be revealed to you today at his table. Or maybe you don't even know if you believe in Jesus, and you don't even know if you want to be a follower of Jesus, but something just tells you to come up with the rest of the church and you say you know what I'm not even sure what I believe about him but I saw him break the bread and something in my mind shifted and something in the atmosphere shifted and all of a sudden Christ felt real to me and Christ was revealed to me in a way that I've never seen him before you can see something new about Jesus uh, the son of God every time you come to the table because at his table Christ is revealed to us I believe in, and I practice a very open table. It's, that's a theological term, open table. Open table means that there are very few restrictions placed on who can come and partake of the Lord's Supper. Some traditions require you to be a baptized in water believer. Some require you to be confirmed into their church or their tradition or have a membership card or all those kinds of different things that you make some kind of public profession or, or, or commitment, those kinds of things. But me personally, as I minister the Lord's table, I try not to to place restrictions on who's going to come. All I ask that is that your heart be sincere. 
If you're seeking the Lord, I ask that you be sincerely seeking him. If you're a dedicated Christian, I ask that you're sincere and, and checking your heart, making sure you're, you're right with God when you come to the table. But I don't put a lot of restrictions on, on who it is, because even if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus or where you stand with Jesus, uh, maybe if you're just seeking Jesus out, I believe today could be the day when you come to the table that Jesus might really be revealed to you and you might decide to be a committed follower of Jesus from coming to the table, that you might decide to make that public confession of faith today. And here's why I don't put restrictions on who can come to the table, because Jesus didn't. Go back to the Last Supper. Look around the table at the 12 disciples sitting around the table. Take a look at who's invited. Sure, there was James and John, the beloved disciple, and there was Matthew, who'd been faithful, and he, he would end up writing one of the books of the New Testament. But think about this. There were three other men invited to that table that are sort of surprising. Paul introduces the idea of communion in 1 Corinthians 11 by saying, on the night he was betrayed, on the very night that Judas was going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, which is a week's wages, Jesus still invited Judas to the table. Jesus looked Judas in the eye, and he handed him a piece of bread, and he said, even though I know what's in your heart, and even though I know what you're about to do, and even though I know what you've been plotting and planning, still, this is my body for you. And then he picks up the cup and he says, Judas, even though I know you're going to betray me, and it's not even a lot of money you're betraying me for, he picks up that cup and he hands it to him. And he says, even though I know that, this blood, it's for you too. And then sitting next to Judas, there's Peter. And that same night, Jesus had just told Peter, before the cock crows three times, you'll, or before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus, because he's omniscient, he knew that not only would Peter deny him, he would deny him and curse his name. And he says, Peter, even though I know you're getting ready to curse me, this, this is my body and it's broken for you too. And Peter, even though I know that you're going to deny me and walk away from me when I need you the most, this is my blood, and I'm pouring it out for you too. Isn't that incredible? See, the invitations Jesus issues to the table can be kind of surprising, but I want you to notice I said there were three men there that were surprising. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus sitting at the table with his disciples, he looked 2,000 years into the future, and he saw a man named Seth. And he said, Seth, even though I know when you're a teenager, you'll deny me in front of your friends. And Seth, even though I know when you go to college, you're going to make some choices that aren't very honoring to me at all. And even though I know that you're going to have some issues with pride, and I know that you're going to have some issues, even though, Seth, I know the worst things about you. Seth, 
this is my body, broken for you. Even though, Seth, I know the worst thing that you would ever do, Seth, this is my cup, this is my blood, and I poured it out for you, knowing who you are and what you would do and the things that would happen in your life, I still poured it out for you. I was invited to the table. You were invited to the table. We are invited to the table today. And it's not the church's table. It's not Pastor Seth's table. It is the table of the almighty Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a table that represents the sacrifice that Jesus made, that represents the victory that he won, that represents his refreshing presence in our lives. And it represents that he wants to reveal himself to us today in a new or a fresh way. Katie, would you come? If you're in this room today, that means that you qualify for a spot at the table. If you've got a breath in your body, that means you qualify for a spot at the table. The Lord's table, there's no, it never runs out of room. There's always room at his table for you. Today, you are invited to be reminded of his suffering and of his sacrifice. And today, you are invited to rejoice in his victory. And today, you are invited to be refreshed in his presence. And today, you are invited to have Christ reveal to you maybe 